everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker here. Welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you that next month, I mean, we're in weeks away. My super dear friend, Nicole Nordman and I are getting back on the road on a bus. Yes, we are. To come see you on the fall Moxie Matters tour in October and November. We're so pumped. It's not too late to snag your tickets. This is a one night, three hour event and you do not want to miss it. I swear we're hitting up California, Texas, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Virginia, Alabama, and Arizona and Las Vegas. We're playing Vegas, guys. So we have such a special experience prepared for you. We want you to laugh and make new friends. We're going to share our stories together. Nicole is going to blow us away, per usual, with her amazing music. I'm sharing about how we can all rise up in the midst of pain and struggle. So many of us are in the middle of hard things. And this is a way for us to encourage each other along the way. So we have a few surprises that we hope will delight your soul as you step into living a bigger, more beautiful story. Find your own moxie in your own life. We want to see you. So to get your tickets, go to moxymatterstour.com. We are thrilled to see you. moxymatterstour.com. So you guys, on to this week's episode. Hey, everybody. It's Jen Hatmaker, your very happy hostess of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. This week is super special because in the For the Love world, we are sharing with you, our dear listeners, our very first live show and special times, call for special guests. And I was beyond pleased to host one of really my very favorite authors and basically just people in general. Kelly Corrigan at my house. And if you don't know Kelly yet, this is your lucky day because you're about to fall head over heels for her and her work. So um, notable, Kelly has been called the voice of her generation by Oprah. All right. And the poet laureate of the ordinary by Huff Post. And um, she has authored four New York Times bestsellers, The Middle Place, Lift, Glitter and Glue, and her latest, which we're talking about on this episode, Tell Me More. So she's also the creative director at the Nantucket Project, which you guys should look up. What a cool deal. She hosts their conversation series really about what matters most with some of the most interesting people around. And so um, Kelly lives right near Oakland, California with her husband, Edward, and their daughters, 17-year-old Georgia, 14-year-old Claire. So if you are not new to me, um, if you have read of Mess and Moxie, you already know how much I love Kelly's writing and how long I've been talking about it. And my introduction to her was just simply as a reader. Um, she just, she gets me and I get her. And I love the way she talks about life and parenting her dad, Greeny, who is like my dad's own personality twin. Um, and so Kelly and I just have a lot in common and she is a writer's writer with the most genuine way about her that I just, I don't know how I can't overstate it. And you know what I mean if you read her books. So I got to talk to Kelly live in front of 150 people in my backyard. And we had the best time. It was such a good night under the stars, under, under the twinkle lights, 
yard full of women and cocktails. And we talked about writing and family and creativity. And it was just amazing. So um, I am so pleased to share that live conversation with you. And because the podcast world is what it is, and we have to maintain our rating for the For the Love podcast, you'll hear a handful of bleeps. You'll hear a few bleeps. And listen, what you need to know is I am not precious about language. You already know that. I have a saucy mouth. But if you want the unbleaked version, the whole thing is housed over on my Facebook page because we live streamed it as well. So you guys are in for such a treat. This is such a great conversation. So welcome to the show, my live conversation with my friend and author extraordinaire, Kelly Corrigan. So... How many of you, and I talked to so many of you a minute ago, but how many of you came all by yourself? I like it. Welcome. That's so cool. Isn't it? Good for you. Like a bunch of you guys got on a plane and flew here by yourself. How many people got on a plane? Yeah. Dudes. I know. (laughs) If it's not good, we'll pay you back. (laughs) I feel like it's the least we could do. It's the least we could do. I know. We were, when we were kind of talking about doing this, we were like, if you want to come, like, who wants to come to my house on a Monday? What a weird thing to ask. And you did. You yeah. did. Where's the mom? And I'm just, you just can slip your hand up. She's like, today is my kid's first day of pre-K. There she is. <laughs> They'll be fine. That is such good self-care. I just, congratulations. You got out early. You got out a lot sooner than most of us. You got out early. That's so great. Well, we are very delighted that you're here, Kelly and I both. And it's just our pleasure to host you tonight and to have you here. And um, thanks for coming. Thanks for, um, a bunch of you, I think, got the notification that these tickets were going on sale while you were in your cars. And people literally pulled over. And bought these tickets on the side of the road, and thank goodness because they went in about half a minute. Um, I want to say a really quick round of thank yous before we sort of get started. Um, I want to really thank our donors and our sponsors. We've got um, Noonday Collection was one of our donors, and you've got that's your bracelet in there from Noonday, and my good friend Jessica Honiger, who just also released a book called Imperfect Courage, which you got a free copy of also, and so she was so delighted to give that to you. Um, Our partners over at Glory House, you've got the very awesome Moxie necklace. Um, I wore wore mine out until it fell apart, so um, thank you to Glory House and to Discount Mugs, who worked with us on the tote bags. Um, with quotes that we pulled from Tell Me More and from Moxie. And thank you for flying here from California. We have a lot of things we want to talk t- talk about tonight. We want to talk about writing, and we want to talk about creativity, and we want to talk about our books, and I have things I want to talk to Kelly about that she has written in Tell Me More and vice versa. And so if you've been around me at all for any sort of length of time, um, or I actually think I quoted, I think I quoted the middle place in this book, um, you did. I almost fell off my chair. I told you that I loved you. I know, but once again, I mean, maybe I'm a doubting time, and maybe I've become a cynic in my old age, but when I first met you, you, like, threw your arms around me and said, oh, my God, I love you, and I was yes. like, oh, that's just, like, writer talk, people being nice to each other. Like, she's probably never even read it. Then I'm reading this book, <laughs> yeah. and sure as shit, it's yeah. like, one of my favorite, yeah. 
It's in print. One of my favorite writers, and Greenie reminds me of my dad, and I bought copies for my whole family, and then I walk in here, and her whole family's like, hi, Kelly. It's real. So, It's yeah. real. This was my first book that I'd ever read of Kelly's, and um, how many of you have read The Middle Place? I want, to, I want to know who knows about the personalities in this book. So, it looks like a lot of these ladies have a lot of reading to do. They sure do. Yeah. We're going to, we'll put up some... Um, Links, everybody paying, yeah. watching us. By the way, thank you for joining us on Facebook Live, you guys. Hi. Hi, we're so happy that you're with us, too. We'll put links up to all this. But um, Kelly write, wrote about her dad, who was affectionately called Grainy. And, can, well, let me just let you describe Grainy for a minute, and then I'll tell you my reaction to it. I mean, the thing, the thing about him is he never met a stranger, and his sort of default setting was, like, open delight. Like, yeah. if he came, he'd be like, lovey, is this great? Look at them all. Look at the tree with the lights on it. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. And the bartender friends and that gal's hat. I mean, this place is fantastic. Like, he just couldn't get over how great life was and how great the people in it were. And, and he just couldn't wait to know more about you. He's a really a, 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 a rare... I think it's a rare art to be as curious about other people as he mm -hmm. was. I think most people want to be known more than they want to know. Mm -hmm. And he deeply couldn't wait to hear your stories couldn't wait to hear what your kids were up to couldn't wait where you grew to hear where you grew up that you make a certain pie that you know how to sew what i mean he, and he just thought it was all like beyond his wildest imagination each person was like beyond his wildest imagination and it sounds like i'm exaggerating but honest to god i have a very literal husband who will tell you that it is just as I said. I used mm. to ask him, I used to give him the books and say, have I gone over the top? Yeah. And he said, just like this, huh. just like this. So um, I'm reading about Grainy and with these phenomenal descriptors and then all this life experience that backs it up. And I call my mom and my sister and I'm like, you guys are about to freak out when you read about Kelly's dad, Grady, because it is our dad. Like, that is my dad's personality twin. And um, I asked dad to come down tonight. He was going to watch some ball games, and so he sacrificed to be here with us in a yard full of women. Um, but my, I, I was telling Kelly earlier that my dad ha shares that zest for life, and he is overly enthusiastic. And one thing that Kelly said um, about Greeny in the middle place, and I, I actually think I have this committed to memory, I think this is a correct quote, that um, it was interesting being raised by a dad who crowed over her ordinary achievements like she learned to breathe underwater. <laughs> and that's exactly how my dad was. To hear him tell it, we were the foremost spectacular children ever born to mankind. Um, and so I just love that. That was my introduction to you, and I felt so connected to you. And our kids are similar ages. Yes. Um, we've and got I believe we've both been in, in school suspension and had crushes on Tom Brokaw. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know about the Tom Brokaw piece. Sure. Who does? Don't you have a crush on Tom Brokaw? 100% like I do. Like the little speech impediment thing. Look at her. She's like, I yeah. do. Yeah. I have a poster of him. Yeah. No, he's yeah. hot. He's no, hot. I love him. He's my very favorite journalist. Wait, um, I've made a list of everything we have in common. Yeah. What else do we have? We loved Moonlighting. Oh, Remember yeah. Moonlighting? Oh, how many of you watched Moonlighting? Now we know how old you are. Everybody that's clapping. We know your generation. Loved it. That like, sexual tension between those the two best. was like, it was never, never, except for Sam and Diane. I'm oh, curious. that's true. It's probably the only one. 
uh, we both grew up with the scarcity mindset. Yep. Like now I, I still eat my food in like two minutes because I'm super afraid that my brothers are going to come along behind me and take it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we both really love and value our husbands. Yeah, that's a good list. That's nice. Yeah, I like that. Um, so this is exciting because not only are you here, and we're here. We're also recording live for the podcast for the first time. So this episode will air in a couple of weeks, sort of in a live setting where anything can happen. And um, so we're just going to roll it with it. Um, so if something happens here that you don't hear in the podcast, I just don't know what to say. Sometimes things get edited. Um, so I love you because I, you are such a gifted writer so gifted that it actually makes me angry. Kelly is a writer's writer. Do you know the difference? Like, not only do you have something to say, but you say it so beautifully. And I think the one of the qualities that draws me into your writing, it's hard to even capture it. It's just like lightning in a bottle because your sense of you kind of just bear it. Uh, you bear your soul and you don't hold back and you don't polish it up and you don't prop it up and you don't make it seem better. And I feel like so many writers that are aiming their words kind of at our, at women and at our generation even, um, it feels like almost a, um, a game of how to get it all right. You know what I mean? Like, here's the instruction I'm going to give you. And if you do these things, you're going to have this wonderful guaranteed outcome. And um, and that instruction always leaves me feeling lonely because it's not real life. That's not how real life goes. Um, and so when I come into your writing, into your books, and you just tell the truth, I cannot explain the sense of relief I feel. I feel understood, and I feel like someone else is just actually saying what's true, um, that life is beautiful and also it's hard. Um, and we're getting a lot of pieces wrong. And so I wonder if you can just go back a little bit and talk about your path to becoming a writer and how it was so early on in the game, you had the courage and the fortitude um, to, to come so genuine, to be so truthful. I don't know that it's courage or fortitude. Mm. I think it might just be my nature. Mm. And yep. it also might be related to my point of view, which is that very little matters. Mm -hmm. I don't feel very self-conscious generally in the world, I, and I'm very aware that there are 8 billion people here. Mm -hmm. And if there really are, true, true to world, 8 billion people, then how could it possibly matter if I tell you that I screamed at my kids, that my dog ate poop out of the toilet, <laughs> which yeah. was a bummer. <laughs> Which led to more screaming at the kids. Um, which maybe led to too much drinking one night. You know, just a slippery as slope. you do. Um, like, it just can't possibly matter. Hmm. Uh, the only thing that does matter, which I'm sure you can relate to, is telling other people's stories. So it's very unusual to have a story that is only yours, where you are only bearing your own soul. Because the really juicy stuff in my life, and I'm sure all of yours, is the stuff that happens between you and your spouse, or you and your kids, or you and your parents. And that means that you have to, you're allowed to lay your stuff bare, but then you have to make sure that they feel comfortable with what you've put on the page, that it mm -hmm. feels accurate to their memory of the event, um, that they too don't take themselves too seriously. That's good. And 
for the most part, it works out. Like there was this story in Glitter and Glue, which is this book about my parent. You know, my my mom used to say, "Your father's the glitter, but I'm the glue, Kelly." Right? And then I think we're all the glue. I think it's pretty hard to be the glitter if you're the mom. But anyway, mm-hmm. but maybe yeah. you've discovered a way. But anyway, in that book, I told this story about um, shoplifting at Sears, which was another great chapter in my life. And, um, <laughs> and it's Sears, no less. I just yeah, love yeah, yeah. I love that detail. Yeah, all the best stuff. Yeah. Um, and such variety. Sure. Uh, also, you can shoplift there for hours. <laughs> Because, like, four people work there. never yeah. run out of stuff to take. Um, so I, I went shoplifting. Like, some okay. people go shopping. Yeah. Uh, and and, I, and I, I took all the stuff. I took jewelry. I took um, candy. And then I, t- I got, to, I, my eyes fell upon Control Top Pantyhose and Suntan, which is my mom's brand. And, and it was in September, and her birthday was upon us. Yeah. And I thought, I'm gonna get, she's a practical woman. Sure. I'm going to get her 10 pairs of Control Top Pantyhose with the reinforced toe yeah. and the suntan. <laughs> So I did. Yeah. And, and then I'm walking out, and this guy grabs my elbow. And, and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. It never occurred to me. I was so, it was such a lark. I actually hadn't done it before. And um, sure. Uh, no, I really hadn't. I, it was just a whim. And um, I was cut from field hockey, so it's the field hockey coach's fault. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, so my mom has to come pick me up, and then we get in the car in the parking lot after this long ordeal with the security officer from the store. And I, there's silence. She can't even put the keys in the ignition. She's so livid. Mm-hmm. And then she says, um, I can't even tell your father this. And I say, the pantyhose were for you. <laughs> And then she just goes, and she slapped me across the face. And it was wintertime, and, you know, the the nose can be dry in the fall. And and so a little bit of blood went on the window. So I'm in my cafe outside of Oakland, California, and I'm writing this story. And I know it by heart. It's a moment I've relived many times. And I'm writing it, and I'm thinking this is such a colossal waste of a writing session because there's no way my mom's going to let me publish this. Right. But I'm, I'm like, I'm just blowing through it. And all the details are right there. And it's everything that makes a good sentence is just right on the tip of my fingers. And it never happens like that. That's mm. like one in 200 writing sessions feel like that. Yeah. So anyway, I put it in there and I send her the manuscript and she calls back, you know, a week later and says, well, Kelly, <laughs> I think it's very good. I did not find any spelling errors. <laughs> And I thought that the grammar was excellent. Because yeah. I said, to whom? That's like oh, a huge thing sure. for her. And, um, and I said, okay. And then she said, yeah, I think it's ready. And I said, so you're not like uncomfortable with the, um, like the child abuse part? <laughs> the part where you bloodied my nose. Yeah. All good? That's okay. cool with like the bridge ladies. Yeah. Right. And everybody you're going to bump into church on sure. Saturday. And, um. And she said, absolutely, I'm comfortable. I think your generation is too, is too scared to throw a fist. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a very long way.
way of saying I you never know yeah what someone else is going to feel when you've gone too far because mm. I would have thought for sure that was going to get a big red x on it I'm so happy it didn't because that story yeah. is delicious yeah um <laughs> You, I like when you lapse into your mom's accent. So that probably bears a little bit of history. Can you, can you just kind of high level it, like where you grew up and why you're sure. talking like that, sure. and where you live now, and where the people are, sure. and who the players are? Can so you talk my about your mom family? is Mary, and she grew up in Baltimore, and she married George, and George was ten years older than she was, and we were raised in Villanova, right near Villanova University, and we went to a nice public school called Radnor, which is not Catholic, which is one of my mom's three regrets. <laughs> is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's too bad. Um, but now, but we went, we almost went to the Catholic school, like we went to look at it, and literally there was this pregnant girl smoking a cigarette out front. Oh, oh yeah. That's and a, Tagata wouldn't lie about a thing like that. That's a deterrent. Yeah, so we just kept driving. Yeah. And so you went from East Coast to West Coast, which I is did. where you spent your virtually your whole adult life, right? Yep, 25. Yes. I moved when I was 25. Right. And you're and I'm 32 now. <laughs> awesome. Or something. <laughs> and can you tell us just quickly about your family that you made? Oh, sure. Yeah. I married a guy from Arkansas named Edward. And uh, we have these two girls, Georgia, who's 17, who I really hope is not watching this. And... Um, and then my daughter, Claire, who is definitely not watching this, mm-hmm. uh, and she's a sophomore in high school, so sophomore, senior. I want to um, read something that you wrote. I'm jumping ahead, and it's okay. We can just, we're in charge. We can do we what we want. We are in charge, yeah. yeah. Um, Kelly's latest book is Tell Me More. I know. You all have a signed copy in your bag. And I, I think I told you that I cried at lots of parts in it because I felt relieved to have somebody say things out loud that I knew was I knew was true. And so I want to read you, just so you kind of know what's up with this book. Um, this is the dedication that Kelly wrote. She said, a lot has happened since the last time I had a book to dedicate. I've been to two funerals, my father's, which was kind of fantastic, and my friend Liz's, which was devastating. I left those services, as most people probably did, urgently wanting to deserve my life and the people in it. This book is about the things we say to people we love, including ourselves, that make things better. It is for Liz, who I think would have appreciated the effort. I wish we could have done this together, Lizard, though in a way we sort of did. And so what Kelly walks us through and Tell Me More are 10 sentences um, that why don't you just tell about, why don't you talk about your own book? And then I'm going to read the excerpt that I want them to hear. So it, it came about because my husband and I were debating the merits of saying I'm sorry versus saying I was wrong. Mm. And it, and, and my position, because I'm a woman, was that I'm sorry is somehow less impactful than saying I was wrong. Mm. That, that in terms of like untying a knot between people when it's really serious, Saying I was wrong is so humble and such a gutsy thing to say, and it's such a showstopper. There's nothing, there's nothing else need to be said after that. You're not waiting, for, as the other party, you're not waiting for anything else at that point. And that got us talking in a larger sense about like, what are the sentences that adults need to be able to say to one another if we're gonna be in permanent 
relationship. And it, so for a year, two years, I was walking around with my big ears, you know, with my ladies and listening to stories and saying, what did they say? Like, how'd you get out of that spot? Or how did you move on? Oh, the fans are dead. Uh, and, um, and so I started to write them down. I started to keep a list. So like things that came up were uh, how hard and important and essential it is to be able to say, I don't know, when you mm -hmm. don't know. Um, critically uh, saying no mm -hmm. uh, makes a lot of room for important things, more important things. Um, and then saying, tell me more, which, is, which got the title, which was um, this friend of mine, Tracy Tuttle from college, had told me that she had been working on this thing with her kids where she was trying really hard not to solve their problems anymore and just sort of elicit the whole story, like the story behind the story behind the story so that you might get to the thing behind the thing behind the thing mm -hmm. instead of falling for the headline. So they say, Jimmy was mean to me and I'm really upset. And then it's like, you know, tell me more. And then you get a little bit more. Go on, what else? And, and then just pulling out the whole story. It's like cleaning out your emotional garage. Mm. And she said she'd actually been doing it with her husband as well because, you know, sometimes what works with the kids works. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's true. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, was, I was stewing on this idea and, and what... And, and I'm a proactive mom, and I'm a lean-in kind of gal, and I take initiative, and I love to solve your problem, yeah. which is just terrible right. uh, habit yeah. to be in, uh, and involves a lot of, um, you know, you can end up kind of superior if you think mm. you can solve it in two seconds flat, and you rob people of the chance of solving their own problems, which is where self-esteem comes from, and where capacity building comes from, and you know all this. I go to have a facial. Someone gave me a facial as a gift. And I go into San Francisco to have it, and uh, I go in there, and this woman, Tish, is taking care of me, and she's got like that circular magnifying light mirror thing, which she's lowering on my face, which I'm trying not to think about this NPR story I heard that we all have mites all over our faces, and like wondering disgusting. if she can see my mites. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, I'm trying to get there, and the music is going, and the scents are going through the air, and, and I'm, I'm settling in, and then it's, it's wrapping up, and, and Tish's whole being kind of changes, and I can tell that we're about to launch into that part where she's going to recommend lotions and potions yeah. to make me look better than I look. And I don't really believe that lotions and potions work, because if they did, we would all look a lot better. And um, so... Anyway, I said, Tish, before we do this part, I just want to tell you, uh, like, a couple things about myself. One is, like, I'm, I'm chronically cheap. Like, whatever Edward puts on his armpits, like, that's what I wash my face with. <laughs> you yes. know, like, if it's Irish spring or whatever, right. and it has, like, a little hair from his armpit, I just pick it off and clean my face with it. And, um... And she's like, go on, tell me more. And I said, well, I'm not, like, great with, like, healthy habits. Like, I don't, like shower that much <laughs> because I don't exercise so I don't yeah. sweat right. and I have really thick hair and so I can go for yeah. like three or four or five days yeah. without taking a shower and she said go on tell me more and I said well if there's one thing that you could recommend to me for my forehead like it is starting to look like an eight lane highway up there and it's bombing me out because I can see it in my computer screen sure like when I'm trying to do my work all of a sudden I, I refocus and I can see the eight lanes yeah and um, she said bangs 
I love her. I love her. And I just felt so heard. Yes. You know? Yeah. So that's the promise of Tell Me More. Yeah. How many of you have teenagers? Yeah. So you are probably at that stage in life where you realize the solving of their problems is over. Oh. They don't want it. That's not where they're at, and they shouldn't want it. It's That's their right. turn. That's right. Um, but the tell me more is brilliant because it keeps the conversation open longer. Yeah. It just it keeps the light on, and there is always something under the something. Yes. And if you can find a way not to come in with all the words that to fix all the things, um, it's amazing what you find out six minutes in. You yes. know, if you can keep it open yes. that long. Yes. This is one thing that you wrote. And I'm assuming that you also get permission from your girls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are telling a story and tell, and tell me more. And it's just kind of been a disastrous morning and everything's kind of imploding. And the girls are fighting and you're fighting with them. And this is what you write. They stare at me. We all kind of hate each other in this <laughs> minute. Me most of all because I taught them the word bitch and I yell so they yell and Edward missed another brawl so they'll like him more today and he's better anyway and whatever lust for combat my daughters have comes straight from me and I thought I was going to be a good mom like Michelle Constable or Tammy Stedman and I'm not and according to a parenting blog I saw yelling is as bad as corporal punishment and probably destructive to self-esteem and so oh my god what am I doing right and then you go on I want to read this in the same chapter because this is one of my favorite things that I read. Um, it's a really funny story, too. When you cut yourself out of the shirt. Can you just tell oh it real God. quick? Just that one little piece. So it's having a tough day. Yeah. I, it, it, it was this like, is like the same day. Yeah. The same morning. The, the, the highlight of the morning was that after everyone left the house and I was stuck cleaning the kitchen because everyone's very busy, but I apparently am not. <laughs> On the kitchen table, I found a little pile of cut toenails. Oh my God. It's not okay. It's not okay. No. And they were like scooped up together. So it was like, I understand that like at least I should tidy them, but she'll take them away. Yeah. So anyway, I was like having a total fit, and then the UPS man came, yeah. who was very fit, like aggressively fit. Yeah. And tan, and like I think he shaves his legs, and, and I was like a troll that day. Yeah. And but then he hands me the envelope from J. Crew, and I kind of write, and I'm like, all right, this is it. The day is changing. And I go upstairs, and I get, take it all off, and I pull out my little top, this like little red linen top. And the thing is that linen does not have lycra in it. You know it doesn't. Every other thing you've been wearing for the last yeah. 10 years has lycra in it. Yeah. So you have no idea what size you really are. That's fair. Right? Yeah. I mean, so maybe you're walking around thinking you're a 6, and yeah. you actually turn into a 12. Yeah. But you haven't worn binding clothes <laughs> in nine and a half years. Right. Right. So I take this thing out and I shake it out and I'm thinking this looks a little smaller than it probably should, but I'm doing it. Too. And yeah. so in I go and I got it on and it's pulling, you know how it yanks yeah. here? Oh, I know. And I can, you can see the entire outline of my like giant um, minimizer bra yeah. in the background. And, um, 
anyway, I can't get it off. I, I'm yeah. like trying, I'm pulling on this side, I'm pulling on this side. There's no zipper, nothing. There's just yes. no way to get, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this <laughs> random shirt. <laughs> and you know, the only way I could get it off was to cut it. So I cut up the center and made it into a vest. That story gives me so much joy. Like, just thinking about you grabbing those scissors and just cutting right up the gullet. Oh, I was so mad. I just, I, I love that so much because well, you know, I identify. I, I Lou ferrigno did. So I only, oh, like I a... cut the bottom and then I just went. <laughs> oh, wow. That's even better. Was. That's yep. even better. Um, well, here's the sentence that you pulled out of this as one of the 10 things that are just good in human relationship and human behavior in families and in real life. Um, you get to the end of the whole debacle of a morning and the question you ask yourself is this, is this is what you wrote. Why am I so mad at everyone? Bubbling up from some well of memory comes, it's like this. That's what Will liked to say. Will the meditation guy from Edward's office? You know those, right? We yeah. have lots of those here in Austin and in San Francisco. For yeah, sure. yeah. Um, Will who had interesting answers to hard questions and didn't wear shoes. Um, it's been a year since I've seen him, and I'm still not totally sure what he meant by it's like this. But I've come to think of it as this is the way it is. Up and down, good and bad. So don't worry, because it's like this for everyone, and it's supposed to be. Like, isn't that a relieving thing to hear? Like, yeah. it's like this. I don't, I don't know how you... I like that you I started... all I, the time. I like that's your first chapter. Yeah. I like well, that you started the weirdest the like sentence. That. Yeah. Of all the sentences. It's the only one that you wouldn't maybe come up with on your own, actually. Um, but, you know, to go back to your original thought, which is, I was so afraid when you said, like, you don't tell people how to do things and you don't feel, act like you have the right answers, et cetera, et cetera. I was really afraid that if you write a book that's like, um, you know, the hardest things I'm learning to say, that people might think this is your formula for right living. Hmm. And... The, the only thing that saved me from that is that the subtitle is stories about the hardest things I'm trying to say. And my editor, Andy Ward, who I really love and respect and appreciate, kept saying, just stick with story. Just tell your stories. So to somebody asked me about writing here, and uh, I bet there are other people who write here too. Are there other writers here? Yeah. yeah? Raise your hand. See, now there's yeah. a lot more writers than yeah. that here, and you're afraid to raise yeah. your hand. Good girl. Um, but it, 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 it's all in the story. And, and if you've ever told a story at a cocktail party, you know how mm -hmm. to tell a story. And, and if you just stick to that, and if you can hear it in your head, and if you could say it to somebody tonight, and they followed it, and they followed the little arc of it, and it resolved in some way, um, that's what's worth sharing, I think. It is, and that's your, that's your magic. That's your magic. And there's something about hearing a story um, that feels human enough to grab onto because it's not so prescriptive. It's simply descriptive. This yeah. is what went down in my yeah. home, and this is what I'm learning to say out of it. And I really like it's. I like it's like this because, in my opinion, and I, I spend my life essentially serving women, more or less, um, and so I'm very familiar with all the narratives that are aimed our direction. I know what the messaging is to women. Um, and I find that it's very, very easy to hook into the fake story, the, the, 
the sh very shiny polished one where everybody has got it all figured out and they've sorted it out and you feel lonely in your messy crappy life mm -hmm. where your your kids are going off the rails and your your marriage doesn't look like that and you lose your temper and you lose your mind and so I like it's like this because it says and life gets hard sometimes because it is it's not because you're doing it all wrong right you know it's not because you you didn't get the right formula it's just because it is for everybody and it's supposed to be and it's good for us um and so Wait, there's just something before honest you, before you ask me another question i want to ask you a question and maybe the answer is it's like this hmm, okay <laughs> um but you talked about something that totally struck a chord in me and i bet you guys too which is that when you were growing up, you're one of four, and um, you, it didn't seem that it didn't seem like anything that was happening in the house would indicate that you would one day be close. Mm. Oh yeah. And you said, but it took a few years to give each other permission to be different grown-ups than our childhood roles dictated. And there are days in your own household where you are convinced your children will never speak again once they move out. It's like living in my own personal real-world series. Right. <laughs> and. I, and then you say later, is it working? Did it take? Will it ever produce anything good? And I, I have talked to my husband about this a million times, that we as parents, and I bet it's so common, so want our children to be close when they get older. Hmm. We so want to set things up such that they will have each other as they get older. And I know that it was a huge thing for my parents. And I bet it was a huge thing for yours. So I wonder if you have a way to articulate why that is. Why is that so important to us? Mm. Like, does it somehow prove that we did it right or that we created some culture or commitment or loyalty that goes the distance that mm. will, is it something about mortality and that that's all gonna happen in, our, in the wake of our lives? And is it the comfort that we've experienced from our own siblings? Like, why is that such, it's so important to me. Mm, that my children are close. And it's actually, I think, probably more rare than not. I mean, mm. most people, if you ask them about That's their siblings, point. are not, like, deeply, deeply connected and using each other to get through life. Like, mm. a lot of people have a nice rapport with their siblings, but they're not, like, leaning on each other the way that I dream my children will and the way I think your family does, both mm. your family of origin and your maid family. Well, we're, we're sorting that out as adults. Like... My sister is back there, and she would tell you between, I'm the oldest, and then we've got a sister between us, and then my sister Courtney, and then the baby is a boy. And Your uh, private baby is your My baby. private baby, that's right. <laughs> he is very cute. Is Sarah here, my sister-in-law? Yeah, she's back there, too. She married him. She pulled him off the market, so that's your enemy. Um, but she has a baby that she could pass around to all of true. us. That's true. And another one on its way. That's exciting. Um... But there was a time growing up, I'm, I'm going to come back to you, I'm coming to your question, because I think you actually made a lot of salient points. It's probably a little bit of all those things. But when we were growing up, there's 10 years between us from top to bottom. So we were in very different stages of life. Like when you're in high school and in elementary school, you're just on different planets. Um, and I remember one time we fought, oh my gosh, did we ever fight? We were, guys, we were vicious. Like, weren't we, Dad? Yeah. Yeah. And Dad didn't help the cause because he wrestled with us all the time, and he never knew when to pull back. 
like, it starts out funny, but we're all going into like rage. And he's just like, let's keep it going. This is fun. You know, and like, rip it up. Let's, let's see what happens. Honey, give um, me a beer. The kids are fighting. Yeah, it kind of was like that. He just like stirred this tornado up and then would just like walk in the backyard and like leave us to our own carnage. And it, um, is, it is true that no one, you, you'll never be crueler to another human being than to a sibling. I mean, the things that oh people gosh, say to each so other true. inside families it's are like, so incredible. True. No civilized people act it's like that so in the true. real world. So mean. So, so I mean, mean. Unrecognizably mean. Yes, like our darkest devils. Yes, come and out they go with right to your softest. That's it, because they know. Because they know. I remember one time, and I, I, I told the story maybe in Moxie, it could have been for the love, but um, we were in the living room, and my sisters and I were in a screaming fight and it was probably over clothes that's was it oh yeah was it clothes one of you guys wore my pepe jeans i told her why oh well whatever it was somebody wronged me and um we are i mean we are screaming holy terror like it was just very, very savage. And my mom, who's the most mild-mannered person in our family, the rest of us got our dad's personality, which is say a lot. And um, we're all kind of just, we're just, it's, we're a lot in a room together. Um, and my, but my mom's kind of the steady Eddie and never really gets ruffled, doesn't really get rattled. She kind of is the anchor of the family. But this had gone on for so long and it was so loud and terrifying that she gets in the middle of the room and she just starts screaming at the top of her lungs for like 15 seconds. Ah! It scared the shit out of us. We were like... Mom's having an aneurysm. We've literally never heard our mom act that way. And she just had it. And of course, it, worked. it broke the spell. And we burst out laughing. We're still talking about it to this day. But we did wonder. Like, there was a season that my brother, who's 10 years younger than me, called me Aunt Jen. Because I was so much older than him. I mean, I left the house when he was eight. And Courtney and I didn't get along. And Lindsay's just to burn everyone's saddle. And... Um, <laughs> And something happened in adulthood. Something happened. There's a tiny bit of a medium magic bullet when one of them goes to college. Yeah. College is a deal. That um, turned a corner for us as we started to move out of the house and grow up a little bit. Um, and now we have, we have built just something really awesome in adult world. Um, being an adult sibling... Uh, when you kind of fight through the old roles and you give each other permission to be new, to be grown, mm-hmm. um, to not like dip into the role that you played, um, you know, sort of the person that you were in the family. Um, I'm really, really grateful. And I want this so much for my kids too. Like when you're talking, I'm nodding my head off because I think it's a combination of things. I'm, I'm 44 and now I realize that you don't necessarily get a ton of people in the world. You know, you don't, you're not guaranteed a long list of friends and neighbors who adore you and are willing to like slog through your mess and show up for your kids and look the, you know, sort of excuse your terrible behavior and still love you through it all. And so as for the older I get, that percentage of people I have shrinks and I realize, oh, you need each other. Like you, that may be all you have at the end of the day is the family that you grew up in. And I don't know, I'm still like in the, 
it's still a test case in my family. Mm -hmm. I've got two out and three at home, and I'm just not sure. I just don't know how it's going to work yet. Um, but I so hope that they love each other, that they call each other to go to dinner, that mm -hmm. they go on vacations together without us, mm -hmm. um, that they adore their nieces and nephews. And um, that's, my, that's my goal. That college thing is so resonant for me. Mm -hmm. Like my, I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers, and my older brother went to Washington and Lee, and I used to go watch their lacrosse team because, like, it was 20 cutest boys you've ever seen. With the legs. Oh, the yeah. Legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, the soccer butt. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Um, but yeah. anyway, then my brother Booker went to Roanoke, and I remember, he, this is like, you know, in the olden days, kids, when you had to go to the hall and sure. use the phone, you know, like you were in prison or a fraternity house. One right, other. right. And, and anyway, he called me, like, with his quarters. He called me instead of mom and dad. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, love you. And I was like, what? Like, yeah, freaky. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can do this. <laughs> love you, too. <laughs> But, but it does require it. It's just, you just totally honed in on it. That is the requirement, is to say, let's start today. Yeah. Let's just be adults together. Like, let's stop retreading everything that happened before this date. And let's let each other be the new, improved versions of ourselves that we most surely are Definitely. at 25 than you were at 14 when you were fighting over a Target t-shirt yes. in the hall. Right. While your mother, your lovely mother. Right is having a minor aneurysm. <laughs>I wanted to follow up on something we've been talking about these past few weeks while we've been in this very, very amazing For the Love of Books series. You've probably heard me talk about author school, and I hope you were able to get signed up, but maybe the timing wasn't right. Maybe you're right on the cusp of that big leap into pursuing publishing, but you feel like you just need to do the time and earn your stripes first. So if that's you, there are two great options from the same team behind Author School that I want you to consider. The first is the Clumsy Bloggers Workshop, which is a six-week course that will teach you how to start your own blog, share your words, and grow your own community. Then there's also Author Blog, which is a resource to help writers like you design a website specifically for authors, whether you're a fiction or nonfiction writer. Their websites are built to help you share your words, grow your platform, and sell your books. So you can take advantage of both of these incredible resources by going to authorschool.com slash hatmaker. So when you use that link, just for our For the Love podcast listeners, there's also a built-in 10% discount for both of those services. So you'll get a little love from us to start you on your way to realizing your writing dreams because you guys know what I always say. There is always more room at the table. If you have a dream to write, if you have a story to tell, it's time to tell it. I believe in you. I believe in your work. I believe in your potential. So visit authorschool.com slash Jen Hatmaker today to take advantage of these two phenomenal services for authors. I wonder if we could like talk a little shop for a minute. Um, sure. 
I would love to hear you talk about writing for a few minutes and um, what kind of writer you are and how you like to write and what your processes are and where, where the tension is for you. Like, where does it rub? Mm -hmm. um, what's your sort of ideal working environment? And like, when do you feel like you have the wind at your back as mm. a writer? Rarely. Mm. Would yeah, you say? It's, that's a, just a fact. Um, I mean, reading is where writing starts mm -hmm. and knowing what speaks to you and what you respond to and, and then starting to do that great deconstructive work of understanding why, mm -hmm. which is so satisfying. And I have a master's in English Lit, so I got to do that. I got to learn how, to, how the critics do it. And that was a really fun way to look at craft and think about exactly how this magic is made. And it's a funny thing to deconstruct magic because it really is. I mean, it's an incredible chemical moment between everything that you have lived through, every book you've ever read, the day you find my book, and then everything I'm saying and lived and putting in front of you. And like in that moment, like something so big can happen. Like mm. the potential of a book to be meaningful for someone, to like open something up for someone, to set someone free is so thrilling. It's mm. like a wonder to me that everybody doesn't want to try it one time. That's great. Because it's, it, you know, you, you know it, you hear it. I mean, and especially with the middle place, because I was writing about, I was really writing about identity and like who I was because in my head I was my father's daughter but in on paper I was two people's mother and somebody's wife and a resident of California but m mentally I was just Greenie's kid and in fact that's how I started my eulogy for him I said I'm George Corgan's daughter like today forever but when people come up to you and say I had a Greenie like you I, ha I have that person. I know that love. I have been loved that well before in my life. And, and you crystallize it for me. You said it a way I could never say it. And it's like, exactly. That's exactly right. That scene where you were, you know, at odds with your in-laws. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel sometimes. That word I was telling somebody earlier, exactly, is like super big for me. It's like, that's, I think, what I'm gunning for. Hmm. Is for somebody to say, that's it. Right on the nose. That's, mm -hmm. that's, and... That seems like a great job to like chronicle ordinary life in a way that is useful to others. Mm. Um, but I saw in here that your breakthrough book, so when you get a master's in literature, you're reading um, Dickens and Shakespeare and a little bit of Marilyn Robinson and right. some more current stuff. But you know, the very best of the best, the award-winning stuff that lasts, is gonna last for hundreds of years. Right. And when you're, in, when you're steeped in that, you think, oh my God, I can't even believe I would ever say the words out loud. I want to write a book like I'm a moron compared to these people. Right. And I am. There's no question. But then I read Anne Lamott for the first yeah. time. I read Operating Instructions. Have yeah. you guys read it? Yeah. Or surely you've read some of her stuff. Yeah. And um, it, to me, I was like, this is so satisfying as a reader. I'm yeah. so loving this. And I didn't even know this type of book existed. Yeah. And this, uh, this is something I could try. And yours was uh, Girlfriend's Guide to Pregnancy, Vicki Ivine, right? Right. Highbrow, right here. Um, yeah. Just the, you know, the kind of book they assigned to a, you know, English lit master's class. Um, Did I set that up that way? I didn't totally oh, no. mean to. I think no, I'm tickled because... I loved that book. Because I'm actually completely agreeing with you. Anne Lamott also set me free in, yeah. the, in a similar way, which is that I think beautiful, timeless literature gives us many, many gifts. Um, it really 
teaches us prose and it teaches us classic writing and like gives us some of our most beloved characters. But there is something to be said for discovering an author who gives you humanity, you know, who gives you life. I, I remember reading Anne Lamott. Um, how many of you have read Anne? I just, yeah, okay. I remember just reading the very first book of hers I read, which was Traveling Mercies. And I thought, one second, I just closed the book and I, I wondered, can we say that? Like, yeah. are we allowed? Yeah. Are we allowed, like, in this sort of Christian-ish space to talk like that? Because I didn't know that I had permission for it and I am here for this. Um, and then when I read A Girlfriend's Guide to Pregnancy, <laughs> did any of you read that? Yes. It's great. It's yeah, I mean, it sold millions of copies for a reason. Again, it was this revelation to me of going, oh, it's possible to talk about a fairly serious subject that has some gravitas to it, like childbirth, in a way that is warm and funny and irreverent and hysterical um, and kind of breaks the rules a little bit. And so writers like that gave me permission yeah. to be myself. To write in my own yeah. voice. And you know what I think all the time? This is such a funny thought. It's a little bit embarrassing. But a, a lot of times... <laughs> you're going to think I'm so weird. A lot of times I think this sentence. I can't believe everybody has a different face. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All right. This is super weird. But, but the... <laughs> But it's, like, amazing. There are 8 billion people here. Like, your face is, you're the only person with your face. Yeah. And there's never like, going to be another odds? person yeah. with your face. Like, how many versions of this shit? It's just a nose and a mouth and a, like, how many iterations? But anyway, I think that about mm. books. I feel like there's a lot of ways to be beautiful. Like, there are beautiful redheads, mm. and there are beautiful little petite women, and there are beautiful big women, and there are beautiful black women, and beautiful Asian women, and... Beautiful Serena Williams and beautiful Naomi Osaka. Yeah. Both beautiful. Yeah. So different. And that's like books. Hmm. Like you can write, Marilyn Robinson's books are beautiful. David Sedaris' books are fantastic. Fantastic. Like every, there's plenty of ways to be useful. And that's really my thing is I really want to feel, and you said something in your book about like, I want, I, I honor your time. Hmm. I, I recognize that you have a lot to do. You're busy and you, you picked up this book, you bought this book, and you read this book. Mm -hmm. And I feel that way. I feel like I'm asking a lot of you. And I want you to finish it and close it and say, uh, oh, so worth it. Yeah, that's good. Like, worth every minute. That's what, I, that's what I'd want you to feel. I'd feel mortified if you were kind of like, meh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, my, that's my worst nightmare. Yeah. Like, you know, I, sometimes I used to have these horrible images in my head that I just scrub out of like two people I really respected. In particular, if they're watching, it was Doug and Tracy Lane, which is oh. this couple we know, and they're really, really smart, and they read great stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I was publishing for the first time, and I kept picturing Doug and Tracy Lane in bed, and Tracy reading the book, and Doug saying, how is it? And her saying, mm, meh. <laughs> And thinking like, man, it's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. Yeah. You're so exposed. Yeah. Nobody, you can't even believe how exposed you are. So true. And if you face it, you would never do it. Yeah. You have to like let that. You have to turn for, yeah. very deliberately turn away from that thought, 
Because first of all, it's taking yourself too seriously. Mm. And second of all, you would never try anything if you thought about the people going, mm, it's okay. Don't ever do that to our books. <laughs> or like, don't tell us. Yeah. Talk about, well, you can be super delusional in our world too because we just go on book tour, and the only people who come yeah, are people fair. who like the book. Like y'all. So, like, here you are. 100% of the people we interact with love our <laughs> But that does not mean that my nightmare scenario of Doug and Tracy Lane didn't actually happen. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Do you like to write... In the when, when do you write? How do you like to write? Do you like to? Do you need a quiet room? Do you like a noisy white noise? Space? I like that. There's a cafe in Oakland that I really like because they have really good coffee and then they have this incredible breakfast that's like um, avocado over greens with two poached eggs and a little crushed red pepper and then this flaky salt that's like mm. I don't know where they get it but the salt is like worth the whole thing mm -hmm. and. Um, it feels very decadent mm. to be there, and I feel like I'm getting this giant treat because mm. it's a beautiful space and the light's incredible, and there's a nice hum of productivity. Mm -hmm. So everyone's kind of doing their thing, and that feels great to me. Writing at home is terrible. Writing yeah. at home alone is really hard for me to get in the zone because I just glance up. I mean, you can always find something to clean in your own house. 100%. So you just glance up, and there's, like, your kitchen cabinets, you know, your shaker cabinets. And then, like, the next thing you know, in some kind of aphasia, you're down there on your knees yeah. with, like, a toothpick or, like, one of those disposable toothbrushes you use in the car, like, cleaning. And then you think, oh, my God. Yeah. Look how far you will go not to do this. It's true. You would never do this under any other circumstance and that you're supposed to be writing. It's true. Yeah, it's like a psychosis. It's a, the most yeah. screwy. The, 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 the attraction and then the revulsion uh -huh. of writing is so weird. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's, we double down at deadline. Yeah. If it's due tomorrow, I am cleaning my ceiling fans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm real interested in social media. I just can't, I can't yeah, yeah, no, yeah. wait to hear what you've said that day. You know what I do? Um, I go a plucking. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I get out my tweezers and I just, oh, yeah. I get, I just get real close and I just get yeah. things that I would never, I mean, I can meet the President of the United States yeah. and, and not go to the trouble that I'm going to right now because yeah. it's due day. It's all real. Um, being a writer is, it's like part magical, part nightmare, um, very can you vulnerable. you believe you finished? I, I can never believe I finished I know. I mean, I never, ever, ever thought I could ever finish a book. It's never. true. And you I am what, not that four? person. I am a B student. Like, I am not impressive in any way. You know, I don't exercise. I, I don't clean my house. I don't know how to cook, really. Like, I am not doing a great job in any area whatsoever. <laughs> I love my friends. Yeah. I'm good at that. I think yeah. I'm good at friendship. Yeah. And I think it's worth being good at. Yeah. Um, but... Like, I just, it's just amazing to me that anything gets finished. And then people ask how you do it. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I swear yeah. to God, I feel like I was drugged and then came out yeah. the other end and they're like, here's your book, go on tour. Honestly. Well, there is something true to that. There is occasional. Um, I would say most of the time for me, writing feels 
it's my favorite thing I do. It's my it's the, my favorite work of all the work that I do. But a, a lot of times it feels like a grind. I'm just grinding it out. I'm like pulling words up from the bottom of the ocean. I'm, it's work. But occasionally there is a moment where you catch the fire and you can't keep up with your fingers flying over the keyboard. And the next day when you read it, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. Like, who wrote that good paragraph? Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> who told that good story? And at max, it's one paragraph. It is. It's so sad. Just in case you thought it was like a 20-page chapter no. that she was talking about. It's only one paragraph. Can yeah. I read something else I want to? I want you to talk about? Yes, but I have a few things of my own. All right, well, you can go next. Okay. Um, this is another bit that you wrote. Um, and this is in the chapter where the sentence to grab onto is, I don't know. Mm. And I really resonate with this because I kind of come out of a culture that um, prioritizes certainty mm -hmm. and um, values sort of dogmatic, positive certainty in, in virtually a lot of areas. And it is disorienting for me and it's, um, it has never really rung super true. And so anyway, this is something that you wrote. I don't know is a fairly humble position to take as a parent humble and astute. Me, I can't do it. I latch on to some idea about who my girls are and who that means they'll be. And boy, I do not like it when they involve or change. God help the kid who loves scavenger hunts and tag and sing-alongs and then becomes hesitant to join in all the reindeer games. Who plays three sports and then quits them all to try on makeup with her new friends, Imogene and Jetta at the mall. Who likes boys and then likes girls. Edward reminds me that I once seemed genuinely betrayed when Georgia changed her mind about hummus. But you told me you loved hummus. I'm still buying it. Yeah. I still unpack it. She goes, Mom, I don't like hummus. I'm like, you said you did. You're hurt by it. I'm so pissed. Yes. You promised me. Um, this is where you landed the plane in the, that chapter. You said, you wrote, there are exceptional people who can live with the complexity of things who are at peace with the unknown and the unknowable. I love these people. I feel safe with them in a way that I, could ne that I never could with the men and women of resounding conviction, even though in the game of influencing people saying, I'm not sure, or sort of, is about as winning as body odor. <laughs> Remember fast times at Richmond High when Mr. Hand destroys Spicoli for admitting he doesn't know why he does the things he does? What we don't value... Why we don't value intellectual honesty over easy answers is beyond me. I'm just saying there are no inspirational management posters celebrating still thinking. <laughs> and I've had long arguments with Ed Edward that came down to this. Someone changed their mind and the other person didn't like it one bit. I just would love for you to talk about that for a minute because I am very drawn to this thinking. I am very drawn to people who think like this too. My, so my cousin Kathy is a huge person in my life. So I'm one of a gazillion Corrigan cousins on that side. And I don't have a sister and Kathy's 10 years older than I am. And I just have always admired her. She taught high school English, which is my dream job. And she's a great reader. And she's a person who has like little lines of poetry sprinkled all over her bookshelves. And you know, she has like one pot and 4,000 books. And so she's just cool. And She's also very wise and, and has been made wiser, sadly, by the loss of her son. So her 19-year-old Aaron Zentgraf was killed in a car accident after freshman year in college. And 
I spent so much time talking to her about it, and, and she said this thing to me that I thought was so interesting and poignant and um, devastating, which was that for easily 10 years, like, she just asked herself all the time, why did this happen? And she couldn't rest until she could answer that question, which is a question that's asking for some kind of certainty that's probably not there in the world. And she said, I finally realized it happened because it can. Mm -hmm. Like cars can flip and glass can break and metal can pierce. And that was super, um, super grounding idea for me, which is that as much as we want to make stories that make sense and then we want to say, somehow it's my fault, or it was mm. Tony's fault, or it was that friend Aaron was with, or it was Charlottesville's fault, they party too much, or, you know, we just mm -hmm. want answers so badly, we want a narrative to, to, to unfold, we want it, that has a denouement, that has a moral of the story, somewhere we can land and, like, dismiss yeah. the thought, the circling, and that is very rarely possible. Mm. And you hear it all the time. Once you're sort of tuned into it and, you, and you're looking for I don't know versus like answer, 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 you can, you can the whole world has answers for everything all the time. Yeah. This is why so-and-so was elected. Mm. This is why we have this pro these problems in America. Mm -hmm. This is when everything went wrong at the company. This is why the marriage broke up. Mm. This is why his kid didn't get into such and such. Right? There's always an answer. But there's never an answer. There's almost never an answer. Like, I, I heard recently that this friend of mine's son broke up with this girl. And he, the, the kid, told the mom why he broke up with her. And I thought, and that girl will never know that. Hmm. She will work this through in her mind and with her girlfriends a thousand times why he broke up with her. Hmm. And she will be wrong forever. Because there's no way he's going to tell her what he yeah. just told his mom. It's too hurtful. Hmm. And that's a simple thing, a relationship between two people. Imagine, like, the failure of a company mm -hmm. or in a massive campaign. The amount of uh, armchair diagnosis that goes on, or even just um, medical issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when I was sick, I had breast cancer in my 30s, and... The first thing everyone asked me is, is it in your family? Mm -hmm. Like they, and I knew they wanted me to say yes. Because if it's yes, then there's a reason. And then they can separate from that. And they can say, it's not in my family. Mm. And the same happens when a marriage breaks up. I, a friend of mine just broke up with her husband. And it is stunning, super surprising to me. And I said, do you have anything for me? Like anything I should know? And it was like, I, I had never been, I never listened to somebody as intently as I was listening to her in that moment. Like, you've got to tell me mm. why so that it won't happen to me. Right. But that's just never how it unfolds. And to the extent that we can get, get kosher with I don't know and neither do you, mm -hmm. we can have way deeper, richer conversations, way more connection between us. And the purpose of life isn't to come up with the answer. Mm. It's to enjoy the journey with great people. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not actually particularly satisfying to come up with all these answers because you're just um, undermined later when life shows you mm -hmm. that you were wrong. What's satisfying is connection. Mm 
mm-hmm. is this. This is satisfying. For me, anyway, this is satisfying. Like, when you, when you said your favorite part of the job is working, my favorite part of the job is this, like, mm-hmm. right now. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, would, I would never do it if I didn't get, out, get yeah. to be with people afterwards and talk about it. All I want to do is start a conversation. Mm. I think that uh, our aversion to holding tension and to um, imagining that maybe it was 12 factors that, yeah. that factored in. And I think we see that right now, right? We see that kind of in public dialogue where it is it is all or nothing. You know, it it's is winner fault. takes all. It's his fault. It's, his, it's, it's their fault. And it's simple. It's simple. Here's yeah. the simple answer to it. And I, I, I feel this tendency in myself, and I actually think you mentioned this and tell me more, I have a tendency to reduce because yeah. it's easier for my mind if I can just reduce it down yeah. and find the, uh, the grain, like the hard grain in the center and go, well, there it is. Like it's just this simple. And if everybody could understand this in the way that I do, <laughs> um, you know, we'd sort this out. And I think because it, it offers me a back door to working things out, yeah. to holding nuance, yeah. um, to saying two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Um, and not everything is right or wrong. I think we would be so much better if we could sort this out. Why do yeah. we do that? I mean, is it, is it because I it's easier it's, and less painful? I, I do think it has something to do with like our animal brains. I yeah. mean, I do think it's like a cognitive um, inclination mm-hmm. to simplify. I mean, I, th- I think it's like a fight or flight thing. It's like our friend or foe. Like that's the, the initial job yeah. of our survival is to determine whether we're safe, whether we should flee, fight, or embrace. Yeah. And so there's all this like speed processing, this thin slicing, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, that's trying to help us sort all the incoming messages and people as fast as possible. But in the sorting is the reduction. Right. And in the reduction, it it does create a set of expectations that you're the bad guy, she's the good guy. That's right. And then as soon as she becomes a little bit more complicated and you actually do something good, there's no way I can say you did something good Mm. because I already called you the bad guy. And that messes up my whole map up here. So I do think it's the... I think we can blame evolution Mm. for our crap brains. Mm. (laughs) Feels fair. Because we're not on the Sahara anymore. I mean, we're safe right here, right now. Like, we're all no foes. Well, and to be fair, to give ourselves a tiny bit of credit, there's no precedence for the amount of information that is coming at us now. There's never been a generation who has had to take in so much so fast. It is endless. It's literally 24 hours. Yeah. And so back in the day, if you watched it all, you watched the 6 o'clock news. That's what you got. If you I missed know. it, it's, you can't stay up for 10 o'clock news. It's too late. <laughs> and so it was just a different... I mean, I grew up yeah. like that. I know. Of course. I mean, we didn't have social media. And so we don't and have... one story of the world. Yeah. There's one story about what happened today. Yeah. Peter Jennings told you the story, or Tom, Tom Brokaw told you the story, <laughs> and uh, and that's what happened today. Yeah, it wasn't like if you flip the channel, like the day that the Manafort and Michael Cohen stuff mm-hmm. happened. I was flipping back and forth between CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, and the I was like, if 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 you were only watching one of these, you have no idea yeah. what also happened today. Yeah, because it was also the day that Molly Tippetts. That's right. Is it Tippetts? Uh-huh. I think was killed. That's right. And so that was the lead story on Fox, the lead story on MSNBC was Manafort, et cetera. And it was like, well, this is part of the problem is that yeah. you can just, you can just, you know, I, I think it's called, um, it's a great word, epistolary 
circularism. Whoa. I know. You learn that when you get your master's. <laughs> I want to um, talk about another piece in your book, if you don't mind. This is you writing in a chapter called Good Enough. And we'll start to land the plane here. You wrote, <clears throat> and you were just sort of, you, you tell this hilarious and self-deprecating story of just all your, like, a, a running list of failures. Like, in adolescence and young adulthood. And then you said this. But Greeny, um, blind to the flaws of his beloveds, and I learned a bit of a late bloomer himself, dismissed my plunging trend line. I'm telling you, lovey, you're going to get there. Where? When? I wondered. Finally, 10 years later, after I'd set up a decent life as a functional 40-year-old, after I'd become something closer to the person he always thought I would be, I asked Greeny why he had been so sure I'd sort it out. You know, lovey, you were never down for long. You get cut from field hockey and try out for cheerleading. And then after that, you went shoplifting. Well, there was a little in-betweener. And that didn't work. You did chorus or the diving team. You don't need to get it right every time. You know what I mean? A couple of wins here and there is plenty. That's how it works. Someone important believes in us loudly and with conviction and against all substantiation. And over time, we begin to believe too. Not in our shot at perfection, mind you, but in the good enough version of us that they have reflected. The mentors and rabbis, the grannies on the Bema, are certain about things we can't yet believe. That listening is huge. That there might in the act of committing yourself to a cause. That trying again is both all we can do and our great enabling power. They see clearly that we weren't wrong. Our aim was. They know that we are good enough, as we are, with not much more than our hopeful, honorable intent to keep at it. And they tell us over and over until we can hear it. I um, have written something similar about good enough. I think it's powerful. I think it's got legs. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about it? Yeah. You know, I had got my uh, daughter, Claire's best friend is this girl, Ruby, and Ruby, we went to Ruby's uh, bat mitzvah, which of course my mother was like, I read your book, and I just think you should double check if it's bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware, but one is for girls and one is for boys. <laughs> and I was like, mom, everyone in publishing is Jewish. Right. Every single person who's read this right. manuscript yeah. knows which one it is. Yeah. Um, Check. So anyway, we went to her bat mitzvah, and it was so incredible. Has everyone here been to a bat mitzvah? Like, what they, what in the Jewish religion, what a 13-year-old is expected to do in front of people, like reading backwards and reading a different language and singing in front of their peers and doing a massive community service project and learning all of the Torah and leading us through this thing. And then we keep saying these words and the words more or less translate to, you are enough, yeah. you are enough. Even at 13, you are enough to participate meaningfully in the world, not as a needy child, but as a contributor. And I just remember thinking like, God, I want my girls to feel that. And it's something I say to them a lot is, I don't care what you do, I just want you to take yourself seriously as a person who has something to offer I just didn't do that for so long. Mm. Like I just did, I just totally abdicated my my opportunity. I, I just it was like I had this idea that I wanted to be a writer, and then I realized that would never happen, and so then I should just like melt away into nothing. Mm. And 
and then I got this great second chance and and so I and I feel and I feel almost like we were saying about the writing or like all the different kinds of beauty like you know you have something to offer people have something to offer That's right. and they don't do it because it's it's unnerving to what you have to do to offer it because you can't offer your ordinary superficial thing you have to like go well beyond the surface and offer something more true that is more hard to share and that's where all the potential for connection comes in that's so rewarding i mean it's like the reward of our humanity is that we might connect to another person that somebody we were just talking about this is this great girl i met tonight a woman whose mom just died and i was saying to her that after my dad died, I cried so much. I cried for like every day for six months and I, I just was really crying even six months into it. I was like really, really, really crying in a way that I hadn't before. Mm. And what I was mourning was like I never have that kind of love again. It was mm. so simple, it was so pure, it was totally effortless. We were like made for each other. Mm. Like it was just totally, he was my guy, he was my person. And then maybe three months passed and I thought, this is incredible. An 85-year-old man died. Totally fair. I am 50 years old, mm. driving around in a car, like, crying so hard I have to pull over and blow my nose. Mm. The people could ever love each other that much. That's good. Mm. And if my kid is crying that hard when mm. she's 50 years old because we had it, because we felt each other that much, we meant that much to each other, that is incredible. Yeah, it is. Absolutely incredible. There's no higher moment in a human life. I am so thankful that you shared Granny with us. Thank you for doing that because um, you gifted him to the rest of us. So much so that when you wrote online that Granny was gone, I texted my mom and my sister. And I'm like, we lost Granny. And we felt devastated because we loved him through your eyes. We loved him through your telling of who he was and who he was to you specifically and, and it was such say, a gift i think it's so cool that an ordinary person could be that special yeah and we both um, like rail against the word ordinary mm. both of us brought it up in our books mm. um and i remember when the middle place was on the bestseller list for six months mm. and it the only it's on the nonfiction side so the only other books on the whole list were famous people so it was like Tony Dungy, who yeah. I think is a football coach. Uh -huh. um, and then there were like four politicians, like yeah. Obama had two books on the list yeah. at that time. There was um, Bob Newhart had a book on the list. Steve Martin had a book yeah. on the list. He said all these famous people, Jack Welch had a book. And I kept showing Greeny the list. I said, Greeny, look at this. You're on the bestseller list yeah. with like CEOs, world beaters, uh, legendary um, football coaches presidents yeah. and like some guy that loved his kid yeah that's what's on the bestseller list so good so good we could be that we yeah. could be like for somebody somebody could like ball their eyes out after we die <laughs> <laughs> do it let's do it <laughs> all right we're gonna wrap it up and i'm gonna ask you three questions that um, i'm asking everybody in this for the love of books series on the podcast and here's the first one What's the first book that you ever read 
that you distinctly remember having like a impact on you? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. How old were you when you read it? Do you remember? I don't remember. I just remember the voice yeah. and thinking like, oh, this is amazing that they're telling this. Because you hear about that book for a long time before you actually crack it. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe the choices she made to tell the book yeah. this way, through this person's eyes. And that was that. I mean, I'm a first-person reader. Mm -hmm. I, I like everything first-person. So, And anything super voicey like that yeah. is really thrilling for me. Oh, yeah, that was special. That was a masterpiece. Um, I actually have regret that I didn't name my daughter Harper Lee. Oh my God! I Another have thing in common. Regret. And yes. Claire just told me the other day. She goes, "Let's face it, you kind of like choked on my name." Because <laughs> George is named after my dad, yeah. and it's like, oh, Greeny and Georgia, yeah. and blah, blah. And then Claire's like, because we were watching Six Feet Under, and there was some character on there <laughs> named Claire, and we were like, "That's an R.A. That's name. Cute. All right, <laughs> write it down." Okay, how about this one? What's one book in your life? And I have not asked you if you're a rereader, so I don't know what you're, you'll say here, but what's one book in your life that you've read over and over again? Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Oh. Do you know Gilead? Like, I've never read definitely it. don't read our books first. Read Gilead <laughs> first, and then you can read ours. Actually, read ours, yeah. then read Gilead. Which you can get on Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a link. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Gilead is so beautiful. She's an amazing, amazing writer. She wrote these three books, Gilead, Home, and Lila. And they're all the same characters, and they're each told differently. And they're absolutely stunning. I promise, promise, promise. I've given Gilead to 30 people. Okay. And it's a pastor who's dying who's writing to his young son. Oh. He found a wife late in life, and he's dying. And he's talking to his son about his faith and his um, regrets and... The writing is so beautiful. I mean, it, like, slowed my heart rate down. Hmm. It's so line-by-line line beautiful. Oh, I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah. Okay. Um, last. This is just a twist on a, on a question I ask every guest on the, on the show. Um, but this is for the book series. Um, do you have a book that is saving your life right now? Yes. And it's so good. And it doesn't matter what your politics are, it, but it sound, it's going to sound like it does. Because mm. the name of the book is To Obama, and, but what it's really about is people who write letters to the President of the United States oh. and the people who read them. So there's this woman, Fiona. Fiona runs the OPC, the Office of Presidential Communications. And they process the hundreds of thousands and then suddenly millions because he said somewhere along the line that he reads 10 letters a day. Oh. And so it just, the numbers just went through the roof. Hmm. There are 50 people. They process the letters every day. They read every single letter that comes in. And then they hand back 10. So this woman who wrote it, Jean Marie Laskus, and she, uh, she would read a letter, like this couple wrote a letter to Obama saying, our daughter died in 9-11. She worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. And we want her remains, and we can't get them. Wow. And so imagine the, the two of these people writing this letter after some time has passed, the hope that, that's, that that implies. So then the right, Jean Marie Laskus, the woman who wrote the book, goes to them and asks them to tell the story of why they wrote the letter and what they hope to get back and wow. when they heard from Obama and what it meant to them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, it was an exercise in compassion because you actually, it actually includes the letters that people wrote and the things that people are struggling with in the United States, you are not often exposed to a first-person, unprocessed account mm. of another person's life. So it's like person who's a veteran, 
there's a, this young, this 21 year old writes a letter, it's like four pages and are handwritten to the president because her father is suicidal, he was a veteran hmm. and he's like struggling with PTSD and she wants him to be able to find mental health services and she's asking the president to like save her father. Wow. So it, do the letters alone are worth it and then these backstories of going to find the people and then the beautiful moments that happen when they receive the return letter. And then the idea, like Obama would keep some in his pocket and walk around with them. And, and for the people who worked at the OPC and this Fiona, they would hear back. I mean, they'd never met him. Hmm. They hear back through the system. Obama carried the daughter's letter hmm. today. And, and then, this is really cool, and this is why we should all write letters and not give up. That's all I felt. That's why it's saving me right now. Is it's like, you don't have to give up. Like, these are cynical, hard times. But guess what? Mm. There's still reason for hope. Mm. So these people write the letters. Somehow it would get all the way to Obama's desk. It would go in his pocket. And then, after only a couple months, people in the administration said, I want to see the letters. Yeah. And so they became this friends of the letter and anything Obama got, like Valerie um, Jarrett was like, I want to see whatever he's getting. I want to see him. He talks about him all the time in every cabinet meeting. I want to see these letters. And now 30 people at the top are getting them and 50 people at the top are getting them. And they're totally in a direct relationship with an ordinary American who would never, could never even buy a plane ticket to go to Washington, D.C., mm. much less have the clothes to walk through the White House. Mm. Super, super regular people with no reason to hope who are actually hoping anyway. Such a great read. What's it called again? To Obama. To Obama. Great. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you. you for coming Thanks to Texas. Thanks for the porch. I love the porch. The porch. So cool. Did you get enough Jen? I feel like it turned into like Jen interviewing Kelly for the podcast and maybe you didn't get enough Jen. No, you are no, right. never enough Kelly. Yeah. Um, thank you once again to our donors, Noonday Collection, my friend Jessica Honiger for giving all of you a copy of her brand new book that just came out. Uh, and if you're still watching with us, first of all, troopers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> first of all, go to bed. Yeah. Second of all, we'll put a link up there, too, for Jessica's book and, and for Mess and Moxie, for Middle Place, for Tell Me More. Um, they're all on Amazon for sure. Also, thank you to Glory House and Discount Mugs um, for sponsoring the evening. And thank you to all of you. Um, everybody watching should know that we had women fly here from all of the... Who thinks you know they what? came the furthest? I might want to just show it real quick. One of you guys just grab that phone off there and do a little. Here's some. Who can do it? Who feels confident? Come on. Who can like pan the crowd? You got it. I know it. someone Get came in there. from Seattle. Give right? a look. She's young. She knows how to Seattle. do it. Seattle. Will you turn it around and just pan the crowd so everybody can see? There you go. There you go. Look at all of them. They're so pretty. And they, there it is. There it is. Okay, everybody. Thank you for joining us online. Thank you for coming to my house. It was a delight to host you. Um, and thank you for coming all the way from California. You bet. Anytime. Let's do it again. Yeah, let's. Okay, you guys. What a girl. What a girl. We had so much fun, you guys. I'm still grinning. I am still grinning about that dreamy night that we shared under the twinkle lights in my backyard with 150 of our friends, new friends, hilarious friends that made us laugh. And you should just know that we finished that episode with a plate full of nachos and 
a cocktail and sat in a circle and laughed for another hour. So I hope you loved our conversation. I'm so happy for you to know Kelly. Um, All of her stuff is going to be linked over on my website. So if you go to ginhatmaker.com under the transcript, sorry, under the podcast tab, you'll have not only the whole transcription of our conversation, but all the links to her books and her sites and the Nantucket project and all the cool things she's involved in. And so, um, and then you guys go follow her and give her some love. You'll enjoy her. She, well, she's obviously hilarious. So, um, she will be a bright spot in your life if she, if she hasn't been already. So guys, thanks for hanging in. Thank you for all your fun feedback about the book series. I too am loving it. And I wish it was 10 times as long. Um, so there's no question. This is going to be a, a series that we probably return to, um, again, and we repeat it, but, um, come back next week. We have more for you, more guests. We're so excited to bring all these fabulous people to you. Thank you for subscribing. You guys, thank you for rating and reviewing this podcast. Like you do, you just give it so much momentum and so much oomph. So thank you for doing that and go do it. If you haven't already done it, um, because it is our joy to bring this to you. When I say our, I mean, me sitting here at the microphone, my producer, Laura, my assistant and partner, Amanda, we all just hustle for this because we love it and we love you. So thanks for being awesome listeners. See you next week. Calling all makers and creatives. Jennifer Allwood can show you how to turn your creative hobby into a booming business. Jennifer has an online coaching group called the Creator's Inner Circle, and she has reserved spots just for you, my For the Love listeners. Visit creatorsinnercircle.com slash Hatmaker to learn more. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.